We saw in the book of Amos last week, once again, that Israel, God's people, the people that he chose, the people that he loves, uh, were enjoying a time of tremendous material prosperity. They were living high on the hog. Life was really good for them. We read about their uh, summer houses built of hewn stone, their beds of ivory. Frankly, that doesn't sound that comfortable to me. I'd rather have a Sealy, I think, but <laughs> their beds of ivory, their gold and silver, their fancy jewelry and perfumes and their wine that they had so much of, they drank out of bowls. They were, they were in a time of great material prosperity, and yet it was a time of spiritual bankruptcy for them. They were going through all the right spiritual rigmarole, and yet their hearts were far from God. People observing them from a distance would look at them and go, wow, maybe one day I'll be like them. You know, look at them. They're so holy. They're they're worshiping there all the time. They've got it all together. But God is the one who saw them as they really were, and he said, you make me sick. Your worship makes me sick. I wish you would just stop it. This is the condition that Israel was in at this time, and God had sent prophet after prophet. We've studied a number of them now. And yet the people had refused to turn away from their false idols, from their pagan worship, and return to God. And so God now sends another prophet to them, a man by the name of Hosea. And I would ask you to turn to that little book of Hosea, and I'll give you a couple days to find it. <clears throat> it's, not a, it's not a go-to book in the Bible, really. It's not one that I think we, we turn to and read from very often. But for the next few weeks, God willing, we're going to be looking through this book of Hosea as we continue our study through the entire Bible. God sends this man, Hosea, to... Bring a prophecy to them in probably the most unusual way of any prophet in the Bible. Um, This is a bizarre little book. It's, um, It's a strange book. It may be slightly offensive to some on a lovely Sunday morning sitting in a church service. And uh, I'm thrilled that I always get these sermons. I don't know how that works out. I think I'd bring it on myself, maybe. But in this book of Hosea, we see and we feel the depths of God's love and the extent to which he is willing to go to bring his people back to himself. In fact, we we see... God's love and the extent of his mercy in this book may be better and clearer and more vividly than anywhere else in Scripture other than when God sent his son to the cross to take our place and die for our sin. 
God's broken heart is exposed in this book to a degree that is almost unbearable to see. And his undying love for the very people who have abandoned him is nearly too much to take in. God called Hosea not to go and stand on the street corner and preach. He called Hosea to do something so bizarre, so extreme, so unthinkable that I can't help but wonder how you and I would respond if God gave us this assignment. God told Hosea to live out what it feels like to be God. He told Hosea to marry a prostitute and to feel the pain of what it's like to be married to a woman who spends her time with other lovers because God said that is exactly how I feel to have Israel as my bride. What an assignment. And if ever there was a man who was perfect for this calling, it was Hosea. Every time I read this book, I gain more and more respect for this man. He was willing to suffer and to be humiliated so that God's honor could be upheld. His commitment to faithfulness is still a testimony to us all some 2,800 years later. This is a strange but deeply stirring book. And so I pray that you and I will not be the same people in a few weeks that we are today when we finish going through this. It's written in, as some of these prophetic books are, it's written in somewhat of a strange sequence, jumping back and forth between the present and the future and the past. So I'm going to try to teach this in a way that ties it all together chronologically, just as I'm trying to do going through the Bible, where we're not going through these prophetic books in the order they're in your Bible, because that's not chronological order. They're grouped in a different way in your Bible. So chapter 1 is really sort of an overview of the whole book. And then there will be some things repeated as the story unfolds. But let's pick up in Hosea chapter 1. Verse 1. Did I give you enough time to find it? Okay. Hosea 1 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, you go, why do they always list these people at the beginning of their letters? This is the way they dated their letter. You and I put the date on it. They put all these references so that people reading this could go, oh, that's when he lived. I know exactly when that king ruled. Okay? Verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry or adultery or prostitution by departing from the Lord 
it's an understatement to say that this must have fallen on Hosea's ears and heart with a thunderous thud. I can't imagine how difficult it was for him to, to hear this assignment and to know how much he loved God and how much he wanted to carry out God's mission, and yet to hear this and to carry it out is something quite astounding. And yet look at the very next verse. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim. It's incredible to me. Again, that's another green verse in your Bible. If you're highlighting with colors, you know, green is kind of the color of go. This is another example of someone who heard God's calling and went. God said to Abram, Abram, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go and sacrifice him to me. And the very next verse says, early the next morning. Abram got up and took the wood and took Isaac and went off. Uh, You know, if the Bible part two were being written about the Christians in Greenville and about LifePoint Church, and if years from now people were going to read read about you, you understand, Hosea and all these other people in the Bible had no idea Their day-to-day actions and faithfulness was going to be recorded for generations to read. They were just living their life. How would your story read? How would mine read? Hosea went and talked to DeBlame and said to her, I don't know how this played out, we're not told, but it was all, um, it all had to be sort of taken care of by, by protocol back then, and he, he would have had to have said to DeBlame, I, I want to marry your daughter. I wonder how the father responded, oh, oh, listen, uh, we've been through this before. You don't want to marry our daughter, uh, we understand uh, what, what is it this time? Has, has, is she going to have your child and she's blackmailing you? Is that what's going on? We, we kind of have a system for this now. Um, just tell us what we owe you. We'll pay you. Uh, her mother and I will raise the child. You don't need to worry about it. Hosea says, no, no sir, no. Uh, I, I want to marry your daughter. Um, well, that can't be right. Do you, do, do you know my daughter? The one who never listened to us, the the one who's always gone and getting in trouble? Yes, sir. I want to marry her. I'm sure the gossip spread quickly through that town. I'm sure as uh, Hosea was walking down the street, there were whispers and there were glares. He's the one. Did you hear? Did you hear what he did? He's engaged to a prostitute, and he's a prophet of God. Um, Can I just throw this in? I'm not focusing on this today at all, but can I just tell you, if you are faithfully following God, there will be a time or two or three in your life where God calls you to do something that will not make sense to anybody else. 
and you may be criticized and ridiculed and hated for it. Stay faithful anyway. This is why Jesus said, if you put your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your family before me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You have to be willing to follow me first, regardless of all the other opinions and polls on your life. Hosea must have taken a real um, dent in his credit score, so to speak, on this. Here he was, a prophet, a man who was supposed to live a holy life, a man who was supposed to be a godly example to the community. And he married a woman who spends her nights with other men. I'm I'm sensitive to... um, where we are and who's in here, and so I want to be careful with this, but, but let's get real, folks. Just imagine. Just imagine how Hosea must have felt being married to a woman who spends her nights with other men. Let's not sugarcoat this. Imagine the days when Hosea came home a bit early to surprise his wife and brought her flowers, and when he opens the front door, he hears her letting someone out the back door. I can't can't imagine the heartache that he was called to carry for the sake of God. Surely, at different points along the way, Hosea's family and friends must have lovingly pulled him aside and said, Hey, listen, buddy. What are you doing? Have you lost your mind? You had a great career ahead of you as a prophet of God. What, why are you throwing it all away? I'm sure someone at some point must have said to him, how could you ever love an adulterous woman like that? And it gave Hosea an opportunity to turn to them and say, no, no, no. The real question is how can a holy God ever love an adulterous people like us? That was the whole point of this. In the Bible, God often uses marriage as a way to illustrate his relationship with his people. God is the husband, Israel was the wife, and now God wants to actually illustrate just how painful his marriage to Israel really is. Well, we move on in this. In verse 3, it goes on to say, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And by the way, I think maybe the only thing worse than having to marry a prostitute is having to marry a prostitute named Gomer. I think um, that's just salt in the wound there. From what I understand, she went around all the time going, Golly! That's, That's true, as far as you know. But seriously, Shazam, yes. I mean, come on, it's right there. I know half of you are thinking that. Just go ahead and let the air out of the balloon and let's move on. (laughs) So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, watch this. Boy, you, you think his bad assignment is over. Verse 4, then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. I'll explain this in a second. For in in a little while, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel 
on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Boy, it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, by horses, or horsemen. Verse 8, now when she had weaned Lo-Rahama, which would be a few years later, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Uh, It's hard for me to adequately convey the heaviness of what we've just read. To you and I, it's like, ugh, these are old-fashioned words, old people I don't know. To Israel, this was a death blow, what God had just said to them. For Hosea, this was yet another burden that he was going to have to carry through life. The names of children, especially back then, you know, people just make up names nowadays, which is all fine. But names really meant something to people back then. And the names that God said to give these children was, uh, must have been a tremendous burden for Hosea. First of all, we're told they had a son named Jezreel, which means to sow or God sows. When a farmer sows his seed, he scatters it. He throws it out and spreads it across the soil. And Jezreel was a warning of how God was going to scatter Israel at the hands of Assyria. And that would come up in 722 BC, a few years after this. Secondly, they had a daughter, Lo-Rahama, which means no mercy or not loved. Wow. And this was a warning that if the people didn't repent, God's mercy would be cut off for a time. They had a third son named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And this is the third and most severe warning. God had lovingly, repeatedly, throughout the Old Testament already, said to his people, "Um, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Those are such tender, beautiful words. What What a treasured privilege Israel had to hear those words, to know that God wanted to be their God. Moses once asked the people in Deuteronomy 4, 7, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And he was right. And yet God's people had rejected him for so long that they were now running the risk of God removing his presence from them. Now, I didn't catch this until a number of years ago, but I think it's interesting. I can't make more of this than I ought to, but I, I think maybe it's worded the way it is for a reason. We're only told that the first child was Hosea's child. It's very easy to miss. I missed it for a long time. It says, she bore him a son. 
But it does not say that about the second and third child. So it leaves you to wonder if perhaps they were fathered by someone else. Again, if that's the case, another burden for Hosea to bear. Just think of this family. Just think of these dynamics. Think of your local pastor marrying a prostitute. And people knowing, huh, he doesn't look like Hosea at all. What's going on in this family? Who would listen to this guy anymore? He's blown it. He's ruined his reputation. You see how quick we are to assess things? Meanwhile, God was in all of this. And this whole process, you know, we we read these verses in just a few seconds. But this whole process of having three children, naming them these horrible names, uh, having to deal with other people's reactions to, to those names, all that took years to play out. Years. And I can't imagine the abuse and ridicule that Hosea must have endured. Not to mention the fact that during all that time, we're told in a later chapter, his wife was continuing to leave him for other men more and more. Well, the rest of chapter 1 is referring to a time off in the future, so we're going to skip that for now, and we'll come back to it later. As we move into chapter 2, I want to remind you what we're, what we're going to read. Again, if you just parachute into this chapter and then jump back out, you're going to think, boy, this is one uh, angry God. Why would he ever speak like this to people? You can't do that. You've got to take the whole story. Okay? If you see a parent in public, well, you never see this anymore, disciplining their child. Uh, you know, you get locked up nowadays for that. Um, you can't make an assumption in that moment about what's taking place without knowing the history. You see, the, the parent, maybe it's one of those moments where the parent kind of loses it and overdoes it and yells or whatever. And you might walk away going, what a horrible parent. You have no idea. See, the parent could have been patient for four hours with that child, pleading with the child, please stop doing this. Please stop doing this. You're going to be punished. Please stop doing this. And you just happen to catch the moment where the hammer falls, as it should. You can't make an assumption about that parent in that moment. Listen, don't you dare read things like we're about to read and walk away thinking, what a hateful God this is. No, 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 no. Read the history of these people and how they taunted God and stuck their, their tongue out at him and mocked him and abused him. God has been patient this whole time. But as we come into chapter 2, now we've got to remember, he's, he's judging this sin. And this judgment has to take place because he's a holy God. He cannot ignore sin. If, if God winks at sin and doesn't judge it, then the whole thing falls apart. He's not God. He cannot be holy. So this is now years later. The children are older, and they see what their mother is doing, no doubt. And God addresses them starting in verse 2 of chapter 2. Verse 1, by the way, ought to be the last verse of chapter 1. It has no business being in chapter 2. 
Uh, of course, the chapter verses weren't in the original. This was added years later, and for the most part, they did a great job. It's a tremendous help, but this is an example where I have no idea what they were thinking. Anyway, uh, we start in verse 2 of chapter 2. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. These are all legal terms now. For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. This is so sad. It's like, it's like a father walking out of divorce court, having lost everything, even though he and everybody in town knows it's not his fault. He's been wiped out. He's lost everything. And as his wife leaves the courtroom, she won't look at him. She won't speak to him. As she's walking down the hall, he says to his kids, Hey, kids, please, please go talk to your mother. Please ask her to come back. Tell her I still love her. And you go, what? This is God. He's saying, judgment is coming. I'm going to have to leave you if you don't stop this. Please send the kids, do whatever's necessary. Go and plead with your mother. Tell her I love her, have her to come back. And now God turns his attention away from the children. In verse 4 and 5, he says this, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. Now that sort of ties in a bit to what I said a moment ago. I don't know on that, so don't, don't quote me on that. But verse 5, for their mother has played the harlot, She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Now remember here, let's not lose sight of the fact that Gomer is a picture of Israel. And she has actually been fooled into believing that all the lovers that she's chasing after are the ones who are meeting her needs and supplying her needs and satisfying her desires with the bread and the water and the wool and so on. But if you jump ahead to verse 8, God says this, For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. All this time that she's been doing this and getting paid, receiving gifts from these men and so on, she thought that it was those lovers who were providing those things for her. She didn't even realize that it was actually the goodness of God meeting her needs, even in her unfaithfulness, God was still loving her. Again, I want to be delicate about this, but it's sort of like this. It's sort of like Gomer being in the upstairs bedroom and having men coming into the house one after the other to be with her. And as they come in, Hosea is sitting there by the front door and they they say, oh, you know, I don't I don't have any money. Hosea says, it's okay. Here. Give this to her. And oh, while you're there, give this 
this gift to her as well. I love her. I want her to have this. This is what God is doing to his unfaithful people. They've turned away from him. Their hearts are cold toward him. And yet all this time, God has been the one who's been meeting their needs, paying their bills, filling their stomach, and they don't recognize it. Oh, man. How often do we go through life busy doing our thing and forgetting all the while that God is still loving us? He's still caring for us. She has a loving husband at home waiting for her. A husband who would go to the ends of the earth to provide all these things and more for her. Yet she's convinced that her needs will be met somewhere else. Hey, maybe like me, you've lived long enough now to know that's a lie. It's a lie. You and I will never find fulfillment. We will never find peace. We will never find satisfaction or joy in anything or anyone other than the one who created us. This is why Jesus said, if you're hungry, come to me. I'll give you the bread of life. You eat this, you'll never be hungry again. If you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you living water. You drink the water of the world, you're going to be thirsty again. It'll satisfy for a moment. But if you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. Still, Gomer was determined to go her own way. And when we do that, listen, God loves us enough to do whatever it takes to bring us back. It's not a contradiction what I just said. Those two go hand in hand. God's love and God's discipline. If you are really his child, God will tan your hide until you come back to him. He will not let you go. Whatever it takes, whatever he needs to bring into your life, he will do that to bring you back. Look at verses 6 and 7. God says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better for me than now. This is the moment Hosea has been waiting for and longing for and dreaming of when the wife he loves would finally come to her senses and turn from her sinful ways and return home. But sadly, that day hasn't come yet for Gomer. She's still out chasing other men. And by this point, if we were living then, if we were Hosea's friend, surely at this point, we would pull him aside and say, what are you doing? Leave her. Leave her. Instead, he does something so beautiful, 
so touching. I can hardly take it in. And God portrays this through what he does for unfaithful Israel. After all this rejection, after all this abuse he's taken, after all the heartache and embarrassment, he says this, starting in verse 14. I really want you to soak in these words within the context that they're spoken. Therefore, God says, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. We can hardly believe what we're hearing here. What kind of love is this? And then God tells Hosea to go and do the same thing for his unfaithful wife. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself, Hosea says. I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days and shall not play the harlot nor shall you have a man, so too will I be toward you. As if it wasn't painful enough for Hosea to have to go out and I imagine walking through the city streets at night looking for his wife, having to go to different places and talk to different men. Have you seen, have you seen my wife? Maybe some men said, Oh, she's your wife? I didn't know, man. I'm sorry. Hey, good luck with this, you know. Listen, again, this is real world stuff. None of this was pretty. As if it wasn't painful enough, embarrassing enough for Hosea to have to go out and look for his wife. But when he did find her, he had to buy her back because of the debt that she was now in. She's gone so far into sin. She's sunk so low by this point that she's actually become a slave in the very thing she's been pursuing. Hello. That's what sin always eventually does to us. Always. It entices us in with all kinds of promises at first, like the sirens on the rocks. Ooh, they're pretty, they sing beautiful songs, and they, they lure us over to them, and we don't know that our ship is about to be ripped to pieces on the rocks. They'll entice us in 
with sweet promises at first, but in the end, sin always owns and enslaves us. At this point, you know, Hosea could have gotten a glimpse of his wife in this terrible condition. And he could have heard the man say to her what the price was to buy her back. And he could have looked back at Hosea and said, no, no, she's not worth it anymore. I don't want her back now. Certainly not for that price. Instead, he pays the price and he takes her home. I wonder if Gomer, when she saw Hosea come and pay the price, I wonder if she thought, well, you know, I guess after all this, I do deserve to just go home and be a slave. But Hosea says, no, 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 honey, no. I didn't buy you to make you my slave. I bought you because I want to marry you again. I love you. I want you to be my wife. He says three times here, I will betroth you. But this restoration we see here isn't just for Gomer. It's for her children too. And we wrap it up with this. Back in chapter 1, where I said this part took place a little later, chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 1. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That was his promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Verse 11, Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head as they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brethren, My people, and to your sisters, say, Mercy is shown. See, the the scattering of the people that Jezreel foretold, God says, I won't forget my covenant with you. I will gather you back together, and Jezreel will become a reason for joy now. The, The daughter whose name foretold the end of God's mercy, God says, I will show you mercy again. The the son whose name meant you are not my people. God says, no, 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 you you can change that to you are my people because my love for you never dies. And I think we're meant to be a bit puzzled by this back and forth here where God describes the terrible consequences of their sin, but then he swoops back in and rescues them by his mercy once again. I think we're meant to be jolted by this contrast. I I think we're meant to be dumbfounded by it because honestly, that's what God's love does to us. It leaves us speechless. When we see the reality and the extent of our sin, oh, you may be the best person in Greenville, but you are a sinner before God. When we actually see ourselves for what we are, we see the horror of our sin in the eyes of a holy God 
It jolts us, and then we see the judgment of God coming, and he says, if you will just trust in me, believe in me, put your faith in what my son did for you, I will rescue you from the coming judgment. It's meant to jar us. God's love is almost too much for us to comprehend. To see Gomer mistreating her husband so badly for so long, to see her life destroyed by sin, and then to see Hosea pay the price to buy her back and make her his own again. What is God saying through all this? God is saying, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, I want you back. I want you back. And before you dismiss this and say, well, that's a really old story. It has nothing to do with me. May I remind you that you are that unfaithful wife. I am that unfaithful wife. Because sin is spiritual adultery against God and all of us are guilty of that. Should God take us back? Absolutely not. But that's the gospel, folks. That's the beauty of the gospel. There's no reason for God to take us back. And yet the gospel says, for God so loved The world, I wish I had a way to understand and convey the world of meaning behind that little two-letter word, so. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God paid the penalty for our unfaithfulness, and he bought us back by his redeeming grace to make us his own for all eternity. This is love unlike any other, folks. You will not find this love anywhere else. Your spouse cannot give you this love. Your children cannot give you this love. An affair cannot give you this love. This is love like we have never known. And God has shown you this love through his son, Jesus Christ. So I close by asking, what should our response be? Let me just sum it up with these song lyrics, because I'm not smart enough to put it in better words than this. This is what our response should be. Listen to these wonderful old lyrics. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Let's pray.
maybe you're here today or you're watching online or maybe you're watching this months or years from now. And only you know the place where you really, truly are in life before God. None of what I've said today was meant to be harsh to you or or judge you. But I'm telling you, if, if you continue on where you are, God's judgment is going to fall. Even as we speak, it's coming closer and closer because it... Sin must be judged. You are no one special. You do not get a free pass. We must all deal with this situation before God. And so I I just encourage you the only way I know how. Look, if that's you today, God stands ready to take you back. He's already paid the price to buy you back. He just stands waiting, saying, come, come to me. I've redeemed you. I want you to be my people once again. If that's you and you need to speak with someone or just have someone pray with you, I'll be at the back during these closing songs. You're welcome to come and speak to me. Ladies, we have a a lady in the back as well who's waiting for you. If this is you today, if God's tugging at your heart, don't walk out of here today neglecting this. This is your opportunity to set it right. God loves you, and he's waiting for you. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word. So simple and beautiful, yet inescapable. God, do your work in our hearts today, I pray, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.